Okay, let's pretend that this stapler is the Hermes, and you are... Teddy. I'm the director of NASA. Cool, Teddy, you're Earth. And right now, the Hermes is headed towards you, starting its month-long deceleration to intercept. But instead, what I'm proposing is... We start accelerating immediately to preserve velocity and gain even more. We don't intercept with Earth at all, but we come close enough to get a gravity assist and adjust course. While we're doing that, we resupply with the probe. Food and supplies. Pick up whatever provisions we need, and now we're accelerating towards Mars. You're Mars. Welcome to episode 74 of Abstract. I'm your host, Jeremy Ullman, and I'm here today with my good friend and astrodynamics researcher, Noah Sadaka. Noah, it's great to have you today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Really excited to be on. Awesome. Welcome. So uh, what brings you here? How'd you get here? Tell us a bit more about yourself. Sure. So I am currently a grad student doing my master's at Purdue University. So I study astrodynamics, and I'm part of the multi-body dynamics research group at Purdue. So as the name suggests, we look at orbits or orbital trajectories in space where we're including multiple bodies. And specifically, I've been working in the what's known as the circular restricted three-body problem, which is kind of a simplified model from the more general three-body problem that many of your listeners might have heard of. And uh, I've been looking at uh, resonant orbits in this model. And just in general, it's been really cool to be part of this, uh, you know, just because there's been a lot of satellites recently that have been employing orbits or trajectories that only exist in the circular restricted three-body problem. Mm-hmm. Most recently, James Webb Space Telescope, which launched, I think two days ago as of time of recording, which is going to an orbit around the Sun-Earth L2 Lagrange point, which is something that doesn't exist in the two-body problem. So very exciting, uh, lots of fun things uh, happening in the future. And uh, other than that, I bike a bunch. That is a, a hobby we both share, I think. Uh, and so that's it's very nice to be in Indiana for that. It's very flat, very pretty. Excellent. Yes, I do enjoy cycling, although I think you're a little more hardcore than me. You will be cycling through the winters for the foreseeable future, which I do not do. So congratulations for that. Yeah, thanks. It's not that hard. <laughs> so thank you for that introduction. Lots of stuff to get into today. You are right. James Webb Space Telescope did launch a couple days ago. Did you watch a video of the launch, by the way? Uh, I was asleep because uh, post-Christmas dinner, I needed some rest. <laughs> but I, I watched it afterwards, and it was kind of cool to see a countdown in French, uh, yes, which I'm not really yeah. used to. So. It was launching uh, out of French Guyana, cool. so that was yeah. a treat. Uh, There's a pretty cool shot as well of the onboard camera watching the final deployment of James Webb just hurtling off into space. Pretty, pretty fantastic stuff. If you're listening right now, you haven't seen this, go to YouTube, not right now, but in about 30 minutes, and go check it out for yourself. So let's get a bit of a better idea of what astrodynamics actually is before we start to get into the nitty-gritty of your specific research. Sure. So I guess the most general thing is it's trying to come up with trajectories and orbits in space for the application of space missions. So uh, I'm on the engineering side, so it's very much applications-based. Like We want to be able to find things that we can use for actual missions, like actual space missions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, that's maybe the most general thing. You know, some examples of, of astrodynamics are like if anyone, if you're familiar with the Apollo 13, and if you watch the movie, they talk about a free return trajectory where you know, it's a trajectory where you start off from around the Earth, you do one burn, gets you around the moon and back towards the Earth without needing to do any like big maneuvers along the way. And so that was like one application of astrodynamics where you're trying to use the gravitational forces in space to try to get you to a certain place or fulfill a certain like mission criteria that you want to do. So astrodynamics, it's all about trajectories through space. Yeah, yeah. And as, as the name suggests, the astro part is space. 
And dynamics refers to kind of this dynamical system where you've got some equations of motion that are driving your motion throughout space. You know, you just, unless you do any maneuvers, you're just coasting and you're at the mercy of the pull of all the planets and, and stars and everything, really. I'm, I'm trying to picture this trajectory here that you're talking about, this, like this, what was it called? This return trip that the Apollo 13 took? Yeah, so it was called the free return trajectory. And so some fun historical stuff. They realized kind of early on that there had been like this big malfunction. And so they were looking at a couple of options of how they would get back to Earth safely. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things they were looking at is a free return trajectory where you do a burn. What's a burn, by the way? Oh, you just turn on the engine, you know, for okay. a specific amount of time. So you're, you're adding some energy to your orbit or to your trajectory. Uh, so it. it's called a burn. It could be called a maneuver, adding delta V, if you want to be a bit more technical. Delta V, like a change in velocity? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so one of the options they were looking at was, you know, like, we're already kind of going towards the moon, so maybe we could just do a maneuver now, and that'll just get us into this nice arc that will bring us around the moon, bring us all the way back, and as we come back, we'll end up back towards the Earth. Because it could also be very possible to go, go near the moon and then get, like, boosted somewhere completely different, which wouldn't be good. And so this is called the free return trajectory. Cool. Uh, they ended up doing a free return trajectory, but then they also added a maneuver so that they could get home faster, but... Are there other better ways to get to the moon and back that we've discovered since then or that we currently employ when we send things there? Yeah. So actually, uh, one of the things that people in my group work on are different ways of getting into the lunar vicinity uh, mm -hmm. using trajectories that only really exist when you look at them in the three-body problem model or a four-body model, which some other, other people in my group look at. Before we get into the three-body, four-body, n-body problem here, though, I am just curious. You mentioned that you're on the engineering side of astrodynamics. Mm -hmm. What kind of other positions are there within this field? Like, who are the engineers collaborating with? So I just, I just made that distinction because you could also have, like, people working in astronomy who are looking at the three-body problem in a different way. So they might look at a system of, like, three stars or, like, two stars and, I don't know, like a planet or something. Uh, and so they're more interested in what I would probably consider to be a more complicated mathematical model because you can't make some of the assumptions that we make for the circular restricted three-body problem, which I guess we'll talk about in a bit, because, you know, if you have three stars, then there are certain assumptions you might not be able to make. And so that's maybe more of the astronomy side where they need to use different mathematical or computational techniques to help them out with that. On the engineering side, as engineers, I guess we're allowed to make some assumptions sometimes when because we just want to do something, right? We're not always necessarily like in the theory because we want to just understand the theory. It's like we want to be able to get something out of all of this complicated math. So let's talk about what some of those assumptions are then. <laughs> all right, let's just sure. hop right into it. I mean, so we, we've, been, we've been kind of dancing around the, 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 the multi-body <laughs> problem here. It's a problem that it sounds like you're trying to find a solution to. Right. So let's maybe start with body problems in general and we'll kind of zero in. What does a body refer to? Can a body be like a subatomic particle or a black hole or does it have to be something more on an intermediate size range like a planet or a star that's a great question never really thought about it but i guess in theory it it's anything that will exert some gravitational pull so it could be anything with mass and so okay. actually if uh if anyone's ever taken like a, an introductory astrophysics or astronomy class you'll know that we can write the gravitational equation from newton which includes the the mass of two two bodies and the distance between them and so any body would be anything that has mass that you can use in that equation. And so, yeah, for us in astrodynamics, masses can be things like stars, planets, moons, even spacecraft. These are all things that, that we would consider. Okay, sweet. So now I have a better idea of what the bodies are here. You're specifically dealing with spacecraft, planets, stars, moons. 
Yeah. This ba is basically. The big boys. Okay. Yeah. So you're specifically working on the circular restricted three-body problem. Can you tell me a bit more about what these restrictions are and what the circular means? Just pull it all together for me. Yeah, sure. So, so I was mentioning earlier with astronomy, how you can have like three stars or I don't know, three black holes or whatever <laughs> sure. combination of, of crazy cool astrophysics objects that you're trying to understand how they all interact, mm -hmm. which is all really interesting. But, you know, for actual like space design applications or space mission design applications, all that complexity is maybe not necessary. And so some sure. of the assumptions we make are that the spacecraft mass is negligible. So for example, let's say you have a spacecraft and you want to consider how it moves around in the Earth-Moon system. So the Earth and the Moon have masses that are so much bigger than the spacecrafts that you can consider that the spacecraft basically does not affect the motion of the Earth and the Moon. And so by doing that, you reduce a lot of the complexity because now you can basically ignore the spacecraft when you're looking at the math of how the Earth and the Moon move relative to each other. And so it just makes it a lot simpler. Another assumption we can make is that now that we know that the spacecraft does not affect the motions of the Earth and the Moon, then the Earth and the Moon system now reduces to a two-body problem model. And so this is a model where we have what's known as an analytical solution to it. And so we have a nice equation where we could just plug in time and extract the positions and velocities at that point in time of the Moon relative to the Earth. So wait, so does that mean that like if I know where the Earth and the Moon are right now, then I can know where the Earth and the Moon will be relative to each other at any point in the future? Is that what that means? Yes, because if you have... <laughs> so it's important to, to mention, this is the motion of the Moon relative to the Earth. Currently, actually, in the two-body problem, there is not an analytical solution for the motion of the Earth and the Moon relative to another point. And so one of the ways in the two-body problem that we're able to get an analytical solution is that we write the equations relative to one of the bodies. And so there, it's called the relative two-body model. Lots of, lots of simplifications here. Are we yeah. even really talking about the real world at this point when we have the restricted three-body problem, we have these limited pictures of the way things move? Like how close are we really getting here to understanding how, like what's actually going on? So that's a great point. And that's, I think, a problem that all engineers kind of face. Is like we make these models, we make these simplifying assumptions, and then the question is, like, how accurate is this? Like, if I build this building, is it just going to crumble? Like, did I use the wrong assumptions when I was, like, modeling my structures? There's no wind on the planet. What's going to happen to this building? Oh, it's going to stand forever. Yeah, it's great. It's easy. There's no such thing as erosion, you know. <laughs> so these assumptions all work to a certain point, I guess. So I guess your question about the relative two-body problem, I think that works fine because we're on Earth. So we view everything as relative to the Earth. We're not in some inertial point somewhere else, kind of like looking at the Earth moving around the system. So from that point of view, I think that works out great because all of our observations kind of match the math because the math is written relative to the Earth and we're also looking at things relative to the Earth, then there isn't really much problem there. One of the complications does come up when we're looking at the circular restricted three-body problem because sometimes three bodies is not enough. So let's say we're looking at three bodies, we have Earth, Moon, and spacecraft. So that, that can work out great in the real world, if we design something in that system where, you know, the spacecraft kind of just stays within the Earth-Moon vicinity. But let's say you had some scenario where one of the trajectories, you know, was flung out way outside the radius, the orbital radius of the moon. Well, then you might need to start including the gravitational pull of the sun, because mm -hmm. now the sun's gravitational pull is not negligible compared to the Earth and the moons, because you're getting really far from the Earth and the moon. And so then you might need to start including a higher fidelity model, like the, well, some people in my group use the bicircular restricted four-body problem. 
bicircular restricted four body problem. The four bodies are Earth, Moon, Sun, and spacecraft. That's that would be an example of one. But you could come up with you know to within certain sure. restrictions you, you you could pick what four bodies you're interested in. But yeah, yeah, that is correct. So from what I understand right now, actually, very recently or maybe currently, there's a solar probe called the Parker Solar Probe that is basically orbiting the sun, like very close to the sun right now. I'm not super familiar with that. Uh, I did see some news recently, but I believe it's on like a really highly elliptic orbit around the sun. So it's able to get in really close. Uh-huh. I Honestly, I'm not, I'm not really familiar with the, mm-hmm. the trajectory no that Parker took. So for uh, sure. But yeah. there, there are different models that work for different applications. One example of one is called patched conics. Uh, so if anyone's ever played Kerbal Space Program, that's what Kerbal Space Program is doing. And it models everything as a two-body problem, but within a sphere of influence. So let's say you start near the Earth, you'll be modeling your orbit as a two-body problem around the Earth. But then let's say you get close to the Moon. So at a certain point, you will switch from your equations being relative to the Earth to relative to the Moon. And so mm-hmm. now you'll get, to, you know, you'll get a different conic, a different like, orbit around the Moon. And then that might send you maybe to Venus. And so there will be a period when you're between the moon and Venus, where now your orbit is relative to the sun, and then you'll get close to Venus, and it'll be relative to Venus. And so you're patching all of these different conic sections together, and that's why it's called the patched conic model. I love that. It's kind of like astrodynamical leapfrog. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it. You're doing this like multi-jump dynamical movement through space, taking into account the gravitational pull of lots of different bodies, but you're only kind of focusing on two at a time. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Again, and this is obviously not like what's happening in, in, in our solar system. We have like lots of planets, eight, and then we've got the sun. So there's everything's kind of interacting. Like I, I figured Jupiter, even though it's very far from us, still exerts its gravitational force on us to some degree here. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this also kind of goes back to your original question of how good are these assumptions. Mm-hmm. And so... You could actually use Newton's gravitational equation to figure out at a certain point in space what the magnitude of all of these different forces are. And so that can kind of give you a, give you a general idea of, you know, like which ones are more and less important and which ones you can ignore. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is that they're still all there. Like, even if yeah. we model something in the three-body problem and we get a beautiful orbit, when we actually try to fly this mission, that orbit is not going to be what we modeled because now there's all these additional gravitational forces and we just generally call them perturbations because uh, you know you can also include like solar radiation pressure and other like perturbations that are hard to model and so you kind of just lump them in as like general perturbations and then you have like you'll have ability of the spacecraft to actually like do small little correction burns so that it stays on that orbit but the thing to keep in mind is that the general behavior is still driven by this three body or four body or whatever dynamics if you're in the earth moon vicinity sure like the sun is going to pull on it a bit and jupiter is going to pull on it a bit and like heck even pluto is going to pull on it a bit but the main dynamics are going to be driven by just the earth and the moon and kind of my analogy for this is you know you could imagine putting one rubber ducky in the ocean and you can track the motion of that rubber ducky and it'll be impossible to predict where Mm. it goes because like currents are really complicated but if you were to put a million rubber duckies and you had this like really simplified model of how the currents of the ocean work in general and I'm not a hydrologist, so I'm not actually sure if this is true. But I feel like in general, the motion of the bulk of the rubber duckies would tend to follow the main currents through the ocean. And so I think of space as being kind of similar, where you have these general currents that are driven mm-hmm. by the main bodies and driven by these simplified models. But then, of course, when you actually move it to higher fidelity model or the real world, 
it's it's going to be a little bit different, but it's still going to be like fundamentally mostly driven by the main bodies. Assuming you made the right assumptions and that, you know, there isn't actually like a huge other body that is really important in the scenario. Uh-huh. Like if there was a continent in the middle of the Pacific Ocean we hadn't discovered yet. Yeah, that might be good to know. And if we see a bunch of rubber duckies all circling some random like invisible <laughs> landmass. Yeah. I like this rubber ducky picture. It, this kind of image of using millions of rubber duckies to kind of model the movement of like large scale currents is making me think about simulation and like running simulations over and over again. You technically don't need to put like a million rubber duckies in the ocean. You could put one rubber ducky in the ocean at the same point a million times. And this is very reminiscent to me of like how we run simulations on computers. Do you do any of that in your research? Yeah. So because I don't have an unlimited budget, I can't actually fly all of these different trajectories that I'm looking at. And so one of the things that we do, since we have these nice mathematical models, is we can run them, you know, you write some code, you write the the equations of motion, you do a bunch of coding, and you're able to run simulations and try to figure out what's what's generally going on. And so one of the things that makes this difficult is that it is an inherently a chaotic system. Like the circular restricted three-body problem is chaotic, which means that if you change your initial conditions just a little bit, you're not going to get something that looks similar. So let's say I, I, I have a trajectory. I run it for a certain amount of time. It looks like something. Very cool. I change the initial conditions a little bit. I could get something that looks totally different. And so that makes it kind of difficult because you can't just predict what your orbit's going to be based on a, mm-hmm. a starting point. Because what if you have a little bit of error? That little bit of error in your insertion maneuver in space or something might send you off in a totally different direction. Right, the error is going to propagate like in a in a very big way, like a butterfly effect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so we try to find uh, periodic solutions in the three body problem, which are trajectories that repeat on themselves, and so they look like orbits. So they actually look like a closed orbit, and you're able to follow that. Uh, and so mm-hmm. what is useful about the about a periodic solution is that you know that once you get on that periodic solution barring other dynamical effects that I'm not going to get into, you will stay on that periodic orbit. And so uh, finding periodic solutions is like a really big part about what we do. And then using those periodic orbits and like trajectories that are near those periodic orbits, either to get us somewhere or just to be in those orbits. That makes complete sense to me because if I think about any two bodies or multi-body system in our solar system, there's always a certain periodicity to it. We have the moon that orbits around the Earth every 28 days or so, and then we have the Earth that orbits around the sun every 365 and a quarter days or so. And so everything is periodic in our solar system, basically. Like, I don't really know of, of any, any chaotic planetary motion that doesn't repeat itself. So... I might am blow I, your mind a little bit with this. <laughs> no, no, like you're, you're totally right. And over uh, human timescales, that's totally true. But it's really interesting to think about is that the solar system itself is not like quote unquote stable because you have all of these different bodies that are perturbing each other a little bit all the time. And so you can't actually know like, you know, is the earth going to stay around the sun forever? Just like constantly rotating in this orbit? Realistically, like almost certainly but the fact is that all these other bodies are perturbing the Earth's orbit a little bit. Uh, and so the Earth's orbit is like constantly changing just a little bit. And it's like, I think mm-hmm. that's why we add leaps. I'm not, I'm not totally sure, but I'm pretty sure that's why we add like, you know, seconds every so often. Like they'll just add a second. I don't know. I don't know if that's ever happened, but you know, they, they add seconds sometimes. <laughs> leap second for sure. I, I remember a couple, maybe one or two leap seconds in my time. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that's to kind of account for the fact that 
we have slight changes in the orbit. It might also just be that, you know, as you mentioned, we have this nice perfect periodic motion, but it might actually just be that it's not perfectly, perfectly periodic, and these extra decimal places at the end end up stacking up, and then we've got to add a second. But also mm -hmm. to say that the solar system itself, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of bodies that are affecting each other in, like, really slight ways, but it does cause actual, like, slight changes. Okay. Very interesting. So now that we've established that there's periodicity, but also some uncertainty to it as well in our solar system, are there different kinds of periodic orbits that we see? Yeah, so uh, it depends on what model you're looking at. So in my case, in the circular restricted three-body problem, there's a bunch of different types of periodic orbits, and we, we typically will classify them into like families of periodic orbits. And so one type of periodic orbit might be uh, orbits around Lagrange points, which is not something we talked about, but... For example, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be in an orbit around the L2 Lagrange point. And so these are just like, these are points in space. There's nothing there. There's no body there. But there are orbits that can be around those points, which is very interesting and hard to think about sometimes. Do we have time to go into that today? <laughs> or, is it, or is that beyond the scope of this discussion? We could. I, I will just mention the type of orbit that I work on. It's called a resonant orbit. And so this is an orbit okay. where there's some integer ratio between the number of orbits that your spacecraft does and the number of orbits that the moon does around the system. So for example, you could have like a three to one resonant orbit where the spacecraft does three revolutions in the time it takes the moon to do roughly one revolution. And so there's a lot of different resonant orbits because you could come up with any integer ratio that you want. One to one, one to two, three to five, whatever. There's tons, right? Infinite in theory. And there are an infinity uh, of rational numbers, I think. So I think so, yeah, that's what I've heard. There's an infinite number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so uh, from those, you're able to find uh, periodic solutions in the three-body problem as well. And there's no like single thing that links them all in common. It's not like you could say all resonant orbits have these characteristics, but it's just there's a lot of them, and they all have different characteristics. And so I've just been looking at different ones to try to characterize them, understand which one which ones might be useful for different applications. Uh -huh. And yeah, just just get a better understanding of how we can use resonant orbits because there are actually satellites that have been using resonant orbits due to maybe like favorable stability characteristics or or other other characteristics that the mission designers found useful and so this is like kind of also a, an interesting field of research within the already narrowed multi-body dynamics research is there any way that we could visualize this obviously not right now but like could the listeners go anywhere to visualize what these resident orbits look like yeah funny you ask i actually have a couple of them uh, on my website kind of like a nice little 3d interactive plot so if you're interested, I guess that'll be in the in the show notes. Sweet, absolutely, yes, I will definitely put that there, hundred percent. Awesome, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I'm just I'm I'm imagining like some pretty beautiful geometry going on here with like different ratios. Not to get into the deep math here, but I'm sure there's some really cool images. Yeah, yeah, and actually, it's it's funny you mentioned that because the fact that there are you know this this ratio of revolutions throughout the system between the spacecraft and the moon, or a, you know whatever the the smaller body is in your model, you do get some predictable geometry that once you kind of look at it long enough, you can actually kind of understand what the resonance is for this particular orbit. Okay, so a bit of a visual component here to accompany the podcast. So if you're listening right now, go check that out afterwards. Uh, we'll have the link to Noah's website in the show notes. Okay, so you, you did kind of tantalize me before with Lagrange points, and you said that the James Webb Space Telescope is heading to one of those now. This might be a nice way to round off our discussion for the day as this is bringing us to the very present moment uh -huh. So what are the Grange points? You said there's there's nothing there, but we can still orbit them. That's kind of that's kind of weird. All right, so I'll get a bit technical here. But if you write the equations of motion in the circular restricted three body problem, 
we write them in a, what's known as a rotating reference frame. And so you can imagine that instead of having your, your X and Y axes like centered at the Earth and you have the moon going around, that would be what's, what's known as the inertial frame. You can actually have it set up so that your x-axis is always pointing from the Earth to the Moon. And so as the Moon rotates, your x-axis is rotating around. So that is a rotating reference frame, because your reference frame, which is you know where you're writing your math, which is how you're viewing trajectories in the system, this frame is rotating along with, in this case, the Moon. Mm -hmm. When you write it in the rotating yeah. reference frame, Wait, hold on. I just want to create. I just want to create an image for myself so I can make this. So I'm, I'm picturing one of those things, you know, where there's like a wooden pole in the ground and there's four wooden poles coming out of them, and there's horses that are like walking around, turning that thing. Can you visualize that? Yes. If you were stand, if you were just kind of like a drone hovering above it, centered above that central wooden pole, that would be like that first thing you just spoke about, where you're just like you're fixed and you see the horses moving around. Yes. But if you if you were the bar that goes from the center to the horse's mouth, then you'd be moving around. You would only basically have the wooden pole to your left and the horse to your right, always. Yeah, maybe as, as, a, as a different analogy. What are those things at the fair, you know, like when you sit on a horse and... You know, Merry-go-round. Like, is, it, is it a merry-go-round? Yeah, sure. Or like a carousel? Carousel, yeah. Yeah. Cause that, so imagine there weren't any horses and there was just this flat disc that's rotating. Uh -huh. So... Sure. You could draw a line anywhere on that disk and call that your x-axis, and that's like your rotating x-axis that's moving with the carousel. And so that's like, yeah. you could just call that the x-axis, and you can also draw a y-axis, doesn't matter. But now that we're looking at things in the re rotating reference frame, you could move around that carousel, and if you plotted your movement like relative to, that, to this line, like if you rotated yourself as you were moving with the carousel, you would get a certain trajectory that would be in the rotating reference frame. Like if you were just walking around the carousel, Sure, yeah. If you're walking around the carousel, you experience a certain kind of motion. But if somebody off the carousel watches you, they're going to see something slightly different. Yeah, exactly. From their perspective. Yeah, and from their, like, so that would be, they have the inertial perspective because they're just, they're at a fixed point uh, that's not moving, uh, it's not accelerating in space. But because you're on this carousel, it's not an inertial frame because you are accelerating, right? You have a, because you're spinning, you have a centripetal acceleration. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a different. Wow. Yeah. So that, that's a rotating reference frame. So horses, carousels, oh my. <laughs> Let's pull it back to the Grange points. <laughs> yeah. So our equations are written in the, a rotating reference frame. And the Lagrange points are what are known as equilibrium solutions from these equations. And so an equilibrium solution, you can kind of think of it as if you put something there, it's not going to change. So for example, if we take a really simple example, let's say we have a pendulum that's just like swinging around. That pendulum mm -hmm. has two equilibrium solutions. There's two states that the pendulum can have where if it's not disturbed, it will have that forever. So that's that's the meaning of like it having equilibrium. So the first state is kind of easy to think about. It's when the pendulum is just hanging. So mm -hmm. it has it's not swinging at all. It's just hanging straight down. If you never touch it, it's never going to change. It's always going to be hanging straight down. So that's like, you can consider that to be like a stable equilibrium. Mm -hmm. There's another equilibrium state, which is now the pendulum is 180 vertical? degrees up. Yeah, it's completely <laughs> vertical. Obviously, it's not on a string. It's, it's on a rod. Because uh, yeah. so, the rod will <laughs> just fall. But if it's, if it's perfectly vertical, like exactly aligned 180 degrees up, it'll also never topple if you never move it. Uh, so that's another equilibrium point. Obviously, it's not stable, right? Because if you nudge it even like a fraction of a degree, it's going to swing all the way back down. 
But that's another equilibrium. And it'll never return to that position, basically. That's why it's unstable. Yeah. You're yeah. never going to perfectly get it to swing right back up to the top and just be facing upward. Right, because it would always just have that little bit of velocity that it received when it was perturbed. Uh-huh. So that, that's that's like a, a really good example of an equilibrium solution. Love and it. there are equilibrium yeah. solutions in the circular restricted three-body problem. And these are known as Lagrange points. And I mentioned that they move in the rotating frame because actually they are always in the same spot relative to the Earth and Moon as they rotate around. So there's always going to be one between the Earth and the Moon. So as the Moon rotates around, that Lagrange point, which is known as L1, will also rotate around. The one on the far side of the Moon is known as L2. On the far side of the Earth is L3. And then there are two that are known as L4 and L5 that make equilateral triangles with the Earth and the Moon. If you draw, drew a triangle between the Earth, the Moon, or like from the Earth to the Moon to L4 or to L5, then those would make equilateral triangles. Yeah, I, I really like the analogy with the pendulum. It's very easy to understand. What, like, what plays the role of the pendulum in the astrodynamical picture? So that would be the spacecraft. The reason why they're equilibrium solutions is that there's no velocity or acceleration at that point. So if you put something at that point, it would feel no acceleration. And maybe to get a bit technical, the reason for that is that the gravitational influence of the Earth and Moon is canceled by the centrifugal force of the system that it feels at that point. They exactly cancel. And so that's what the equilibrium points are. Uh, and it means that if you put an object there, it will not move in the rotating system. So uh -huh. if you put a point, if you somehow got a spacecraft to be at, let's say, L1, which is between the Earth and the Moon, and it had no velocity in the rotating system, it would stay there and rotate around the Earth with the same orbital period as the Moon rotates around the Earth. Mm -hmm. Just like locked in that exact... It, it would yeah. be like a little baby Moon a little closer in terms of the way it orbits. Yeah, which doesn't really make sense from a two-body perspective, because in the two-body problem, if you have a smaller orbital radius, you're going to orbit faster. But in this case, you have a smaller orbital radius, but you are rotating at the same orbital period as an object that has a greater orbital radius. You know, you can actually get orbits around Lagrange points. So for example, going back to James Webb, James Webb is going to be in what is known as an L2 halo orbit in the Sun-Earth system. So now this whole time I've been talking about like the Earth and the Moon in the three-body model. Now, the Sun-Earth system means that the Sun is the bigger mass, and the Earth is now like the Moon in the previous example. So the Earth is the one going around the Sun. Yeah. And so in the Sun-Earth system, there is also a set of Lagrange points. You know, L1 will be between the, the Sun and the Earth. L2 is going to be on the far side of the Earth. And you can get orbits around these Lagrange points, and there's a type of orbit called a halo orbit, and that will be what the James Webb Space Telescope will be orbiting. Are there always five Lagrange points for any two bodies? Yeah, there's Lagrange points for any circular restricted three-body model. And cool. you can have Lagrange points in different models. They're not necessarily going to be in the same spot, but you do you can you can sometimes find equilibrium solutions in different models. Mm -hmm. Wow. Jeez Louise. Fun stuff though, very fun stuff. Very exciting that the James Webb Space Telescope's on its way to the Sun Earth L2, which is further away from the Sun than the Earth is. Yeah, yeah. So it's okay. on the far side of the Earth. Yeah. Uh, and one of the nice things about it is that it's still kind of close to the Earth, so it can maintain communications with the Earth. Awesome. Noah, wow. Thank you for straddling the line between overly complex and overly simplified here. I think you gave me and listeners a really good picture of what your research is about. A lot of new terms and topics were discussed today, which is very exciting, this deep into the podcast. So 
I'm very much appreciative of your presence here today and the new knowledge I've gained. Thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. This was a lot of fun. I hope uh, I managed to convey some of the interest that I have uh, in this field. And also, I hope it wasn't too, uh, too complicated that it's impossible to visualize. So, Luckily for us, we can re-listen. And I think that might be something that I will do after the fact so I can really solidify all this knowledge. Just a quick recap, just to really go over it, because we, we covered a lot today. We, we defined astrodynamics. We talk about the body problem, the three-body problem, the circular restricted three-body problem, assumptions, gravity, simulations, resonant orbits, periodicity, Lagrange points, and telescopes. I mean, it's it's incredible what you can cover in a short period of time. I'm realizing now, though, did we ever even address the circular part of the circular restricted three-body problem? I guess it just means that we're talking about circles. Can we just touch on that and then end the episode right then and there? Great. Yeah, actually, I, I, we were talking about that earlier, and then we, I think we kind of got carried away with something else. So I guess going back, got the three-body problem. It's got three bodies. They're all moving around. They're all influencing each other. It's a very complicated, dynamical, chaotic system. Let me take the circular restricted three-body problem. So we make a couple of assumptions. One of the assumptions is that the third body, the spacecraft, has negligible mass, so it doesn't affect the motion of the Earth and the Moon, or the other two bodies, because they could also be the Sun and the Earth, as I mentioned. And mm -hmm. so because of that, we know that the two larger bodies now have conic motion, so two-body problem motion, and we know that from the two-body problem, all the solutions look like conic shapes, so circles, ellipses, and then hyperbolas and parabolas. And so the circular part and circular restricted three-body problem refers to the fact that we assume that the two bodies move in circular orbits around each other. And so the conic that we pick is a circular orbit. And this actually works out well for a lot of planet, moon, and star planet systems in our solar system. For the most part, they all have really low eccentricities, which means that even though they move on elliptical orbits, the orbits are so like close to being circular, that the circular restricted three-body problem works really well, because the circular assumption actually is like very, very, very close. And so it is a pretty good analog. But there is a model known as the elliptic restricted three-body problem, where you assume they move in ellipses. And so in some cases, that can add a little bit more accuracy, but it also adds a ton more complexity. Awesome. I'll probably have to have you back on so we can maybe dive into some of these, these, these topics in more detail. How much longer do you have for your, for your master's at this point? It's a good question. Maybe a year, maybe a bit more. It'll kind of depend on how much progress I make with my project and uh, anything else that comes up. But okay. I'm, in, I'm in no rush, so I'm having a good time now. And uh, yeah. Perfect. I'm in no rush to have you back either, but I do want to have you back. So let's let's put a pin in it now for the next 12 months or so, and I can't wait to revisit this stuff. Fascinating stuff. Thanks again, Noah. This was awesome. Thanks, Jeremy. This is a lot of fun. Take care. I agree with Bye. Jerry. Use the moon's gravity, slingshot them around. No, the LEM will not support three guys for that amount of time. It barely holds. I mean, we've got to do a direct abort. We do an about face, we bring the guys right home right now. Get them back soon, no, absolutely. We don't even know if the Odyssey's engine's even working, and if there's been serious damage to this spacecraft. They blow up and they die. That is not the argument. We're talking about time, not whether or not these guys are I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you.